words have lost meaning and therefore meaning has become lost. The language that we're using to talk about things, specifically the economy, isn't really working anymore and therefore we're not able to tell proper stories and because we can't tell proper stories, trust, the most expensive commodity in the world right now, is eroding. In this video, I want to talk about education, media, the nostalgia cycle loop, but specifically talk about this idea of how the words that we're using to talk about big concepts don't really match up to what the concepts are that we're trying to talk about. By the end of the video, I hope to discuss some solutions. <laughs> it's gonna be a bunch of words about how words aren't wording. The whole concept of this video is Nietzsche asking, is language the adequate expression of all realities? When asked what truth and knowledge really means, he came up with this question, which is a good question to be talking about because is language an adequate expression of what's going on, especially in context of the economy? Anna DeVere Smith wrote about this in her book, Talk to Me, where she talks about this idea that language doesn't always mean what we want it to mean, and she wrote, we get so used to hearing things that they have no meaning. We live the expectation that words mean very little because we have seen it all before and heard it all before. We have so many words, yet so many things are lost. As Ted Goyle wrote about in his recent piece, The State of Culture, the fastest growing sector of the culture economy is distraction, but it's not art or entertainment, it's just useless activity. We are saying everything, but we're also saying nothing at all. So how do we fix this? Let's talk about words. Very crudely speaking, words make up language. We speak to one another using words that have evolved over and through time so that we know what we're talking about when we reference a doorknob or a pencil. As Toni Morrison stated in her 1993 Nobel lecture, we die, that may be the meaning of life, but we do language, that may be the measure of our lives. But we are shrinking away from it. Whether it be things like TikTok speak where you are forced to speak in short snippets to catch those gleaming droplets of attention, or memes which support the idea that pictures are indeed a thousand words, we just don't use words like we used to. Even the vocabulary that we do use is limiting, and here's where the battle between words and concepts plays out. The number of Americans that support spending on the poor is 71%, but if you call it welfare, that number drops to 30%. There is no difference between these two beyond that of words, yet that makes all of the difference. There is a tension between definer and definition, which also creates a phenomenon where the words that we say no longer mean what we think that they do, especially in regards to the economy. For example, we have three different definitions of what it means to live paycheck to paycheck. Number one, a family is struggling to make ends meet and would be unable to finance normal expenses like rent and groceries number two the lack of a substantial savings buffer and number three not having money left over after having contributed to savings and of course news sites will blast the below statements and so if you read the news and see this of course you're going to be freaked out and it's a nightmare because if you dig deeper into this data as my darling does about once a week on twitter you'll find that the median american household has a net worth of $193,000 and they have $8,000 in their checking and savings and that 54% of adults have three months of expenses saved and if you go even deeper, the financial services company that publishes the paycheck to paycheck statistic refuses to share the text, the words of the question that they asked to get to their 60% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck metric. This is dumb and it's confusing and that's the last thing we need when we're trying to understand the economy. But it's not just words, it's actual data points too. The CPI print that we got on Tuesday was high, and there was a gap between the two rent measurements, rent of primary residence and owner's equivalent rent. No one really knows why it happened. Even the Council of Economic Advisors was like, huh, that's weird. But then of course, some of the weirdness was the January effect or firms raising their prices, which rocks. 
As Jonathan Levine at Bloomberg Opinion summarized, long story short, these data points work in mysterious ways on a month-to-month basis, but it's still relatively clear that more housing disinflation is coming. Economic and financial data don't always do a great job at telling us what's going on. Whether that be because people aren't responding to surveys like they used to, or quirks that are hard to explain, or simply having a typo in your earnings, like Like Lyft accidentally adding an extra zero to their margins, which caused their stock to rock 60% because people thought they were going to have 500 basis points of margin expansion, not 50 basis points, which is what they meant to say. The data and the words that we use don't really convey what we mean, or what we want things to mean, or what they can mean, etc., which gets into the limits of language. To be very clear about all this, Bloomberg Surveillance published a piece stating if you're not confused, you're not paying attention, hence why the economy feels bad and good at the same time and everything feels weird is because if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. But the current reflective surface of the economy reveals mostly good metrics. Almost 6 in 10 workers are getting raises larger than inflation, 63% of Americans rate their current financial situation as being good and feel largely decent about their lives, home ownership for millennials rose 55%, import volumes have returned to normal, new business creation is on a major upturn, we have had the strongest inflation-adjusted wage growth out of any business cycle in the past 50 years, but these metrics don't convey the entire story. And because we are in a new normal, things like the housing crisis, which I have talked about before, um, can't hide anymore. We can't hide the fact that things are really expensive and uh, absurdly expensive. As Henry Hill wrote about, the end of zero interest rates mean that long-running problems such as the housing crisis and stagnant real wage growth can no longer be disguised by cheap credit. The decision to take the tactically easier path of salon slicing austerity instead of actually designing a smaller state means government is big as ever, but nothing works. This leads to a disconnect between consumer sentiment and economic data, something that I've talked a lot about, and the language that shapes sentiment via the interpretation of the data is the culprit here. Like number one, we're just bumming each other out all of the time. I had the opportunity to talk to John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times about this idea of language and how it ultimately shapes progress. Progress can come from many different ways, but one that is often overlooked is the role of Culture and, and language really is, is being used here just as the sort of proxy for what the culture was at that time. So it's the words we use would have been part of this, but we're, we're using words just because they're the best way we can capture culture, as it were. His piece, Is the West Talking Itself into Decline, analyzes how language can do a lot in shaping our economic reality, and he highlighted that the words that we use are no longer positive and focus on growth, but rather they are fearful and focused on worry. And there are huge consequences to that, like the creation of a zero-sum mindset and the turn towards stagnation and populism. It's not just about this sort of progress versus worry thing. There's a bigger sort of zero-sum versus there's a positive something going on here. And the more someone is worried that maybe we've gone too far, maybe things are a bit scary, the more inward looking they become, the less likely they are to go out there and try something new. But it's not just that they're then going to start worrying about other people. And there's, and there's these people got more than me and you get nativism, you get populism, all of these things start rising up from this. There are a lot of reasons for this. I also talked to Stephanie Stancheva, an economist at Harvard who has highlighted that yes, indeed, we have become increasingly zero-sum. Zero-sum thinking is the belief that if you or a group of individuals gains, it must come at the expense of others. So the world is in a fixed amount of resources. If one group gets more, then another group needs to get less. You can contrast this to a positive sum of the world where everyone could be better off. We think that the only way that we can win is if no one else wins. And this pattern of thought is very common in younger generations, which is even more concerning. Younger generations are significantly more zero-sum than the older generations. And you might you might correctly wonder, is this an age effect? Do you just become less zero-sum over your lifetime? So 
the older cohorts have grown up in, in environments where economically things look brighter as opposed to the younger generations today. And so you see a total flip image of this in, let's say, many developing countries or emerging markets where actually things are much better now and you see the younger generations being less zero-sum. This also leads us to what researchers are calling the need for chaos. As Derek Thompson summarizes, it's status-anxious people who feel marginalized in relatively rich countries like the United States, they're more likely to engage with politics as a kind of game. They feel empowered by chaos. This is a problem. If you're not feeling anxious, it means that you don't care. If your worries aren't one of foreboding, it means that you're not paying attention, which to be fair, isn't totally wrong. Things to be anxious about are numerous. The geopolitical warfare, the walls of any sense of structural affordability caving in, the endless political tricks, but yet there is an element of this that we have to address because as Marilyn Robinson wrote, asked when she, when somebody was like, why don't we recognize good things? She said this, it's as if we're all supposed to be cynical, even though, as you say, many of us have excellent grounds to not be cynical at all. It's a mannerism, it's posed, it's perhaps more characteristic of privileged people than of people who really might be wondering about justice and mercy. It's terrible to say that a great civilization could collapse from a force of fad, but sometimes I feel like that is what's happening. So this is a problem, you know, we're using bummer words looking at each other with eyebrows raised, feeling like only one of us can win while also trying to sow the seeds of hell in our already burning communal garden or whatever. Jamie Dimon was at Davos and this is the burning man for big business, that meeting where they all kind of talk at each other and they're like, look at how smart and cool I am. And he said the following on Trump. I, I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA, but when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them that you are like him. And and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. Jamie Dimon has been wrong a lot. Everyone is wrong a lot. But part of what he was saying was that the language that we're using to talk about politics to talk to each other is not right. The Biden administration is not truly listening to the concerns of MAGA, but it's vice versa. Nobody's listening to each other anymore. We're just hearing one another. Jay Rosen, a journalism professor at NYU wrote, the internet is rewiring not only the media sector as with streaming, but the public itself, which is breaking up or being broken into multiple, some say parallel realities. As you can tell from my attempt to describe it, we do not have a good language for this shift. The words are not working. Everything requires some element of context that has gotten completely erased in the layers of meta irony that we interact with when we talk about things like paycheck to paycheck. It creates a fractured reality. Not only are we not seeing each other, we're not even on the same plane of existence. John Byrne Murdoch again. The, the left-right divide is substantial. People can have very different views on things, but you get zero sum and positive sum on both sides of the divide. And as that divide just starts getting really interesting in terms of how it plays out in politics, like whether people are pro-globalization, for example, if you view interaction between countries as one wins and one loses rather than as everyone can do well, then you end up with very different policy outcomes. So that that sort of shift is is really being drawn out by a lot of recent trends. And there's been some fascinating papers looking at this and how you get this sort of self-perpetuating relationship where as GDP grows at all, people hate GDP, but let's say as general living standards improve, the evidence of a, tide, a rising tide that lifts all boats encourages people to be more positive self and to think, hey, we can all succeed here. Whereas when you get a sort of structural, a period of structural stagnation and slowdown and growth, like we've seen in developed worlds over the last, say, 40, 50 years, that in itself feeds more zero-sum views because people feel that there's less scope for upward mobility and they therefore start worrying more about who's winning and who's losing. And then those attitudes can 
lead to policy decisions which make that slow down, which sort of lock that slow down even more. Everyone knows that the media headlines are impossibly negative. They're a constant thrum that hacks into our consciousness and essentially is impossible to escape. The business model of media is noise, which is why they prefer covering Trump to Biden. The sauce sells. And the more clicks, the more money, blah, blah, blah. We all know this. I've talked about it a lot. The crowing of media headlines, such as this one from CNBC that happened, as Helene Meiser describes, we rally 5% in a straight line and we get 1% down day and the banner is gigantic, as if the markets have been heading down for weeks. Media is always going to want to exacerbate whatever is going on. The area is also the business model of news, right? It's profitable for people to eat bad news for breakfast. As Jared Bernstein, the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors said, in particular, respondents had been less likely since 2022 to hear good employment news than pre-pandemic, even controlling for the strength of the labor market. It's similar to how the media covers Trump because he is not boring. Bad news is not boring, good news is. So naturally people are hearing bad news all of the time. Of course, they're going to feel bad. I also had the chance to talk with Will Stansel Twitter King and research fellow at the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity. Almost everything you think about the world um, outside of your immediate experience arrives to you through some form of media or comes from someone who you know who probably heard about through some form of media. And, and by media, I just don't, don't mean just like CNN, but I mean, you know, anything on the internet, anything on the TV, anything you read, everything you know about these things is coming to you um, from a third party. And part of it is the business model of clicks, right? Bad news sells. John Byrne Murdoch and how competition has led to these increasingly angry headlines. There was a, a great paper recently which was looking at economic news or just sentiment news as a whole over the last sort of 200 years. And that again found that over this last roughly 50 year period, we've seen a significant dip in the way the media industry just talks about everything. Mm -hmm. And there's really interesting arguments people have put forward for this about could this have been because that was when the level of economic competition between news organizations increased, there was a greater incentive to to have people reading your story or, or your front page and not someone else's. And that maybe led to more sensationalism and and the, and the negative bias. I think that the negative bias in news headlines and stuff is probably is fairly well established. A lot of people would certainly recognize that. Um, so that's one theory. There's a, an interesting theory I saw as well from a professor of journalism was maybe even in the last 15 years that could have accelerated because we've got into the real sort of doggy dog world of online journalism where media revenues are drying up and you've had, you're, you're even more incentivized than before to be more outrageous in your headlines. And Will on how money is really in the virality, which again is often bad news. There's always a tension in media between between telling people what they want to hear and what and, and telling people the truth. If you're producing media, your incentive really is you, you need an audience. And the way you get an audience is mostly just telling people stuff that they will find, you know, that will that will validate their biases and that will, you know, is what they want to hear. Um, and that will sort of sort of activate them emotionally. It's even especially obvious with the Super Bowl commercials. Timu, which I actually did a deep dive on for with Well Simple, spent $21 million on their little Super Bowl commercial advertising the idea of shop like a billionaire. For context, Timu is one of the many, many discount retailers out of China sweeping the globe, selling things like a hammock for cats, a watermelon slicer that looks like a medieval torture device, a USB powered mini desk vacuum, or levitating plant pots for like $3. They sell all of those things for very, very cheap. 
cheap. Their primary audience is actually Gen X slash Boomer World, which makes sense as they spent $1.2 billion advertising on Meta, the home of Facebook, in 2023. But they gamify the shopping experience with roulette wheels and absurd discounts, and all the while they promise that you too can shop like a billionaire. The language of that, through the lens of a perfect model of overconsumption, such as Timu, calls into question the price of pleasure and the cost of convenience. What does shopping like a billionaire really mean? Timu is a mirror reflecting our deepest desires in the digital age, where we consume to feel. But the most upsetting thing about this is the truth of it. Everyone wants to be a billionaire, beca perhaps because they want to spend money incessantly, but mostly for the safety of it. That's why it was sort of funny that another big spender at the Super Bowl was Hobby Lobby, <laughs> was religion. One commercial, which was funded by Hobby Lobby, was titled He Gets Us, and another was for Hollow, a Christian prayer app backed by A16Z. And of course, Taylor Swift existing in her own form of religion was there too. But there are similarities between Timu and the ads for faith, specifically through the lens of language. The Timu ad, which artificially promises safety and belonging via spending money on dropship plastic items ripped from Amazon storefronts, is offering the same thing that the religion commercials are, you know, in completely different ways, but essentially the same thing. Both say, come here and be okay. Consumerism is a religion in the sense of salvation in the form of momentary pride. One must say their confessions at the altar of fast fashion. The average Shein shopper is a 35-year-old woman who cares about sustainability, which is wild because Shein is not sustainable. So what does that mean? What does sustainability mean here? What does that word mean to this person? What is the expectation? that we have set for ourselves. As James Baldwin discusses, it is an experience which shapes a language and it is language which controls an experience which gets us into narrative. So words shape language and language shapes narrative, but as Jeanette Winterson wrote in Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal, something very relatable to me, when we tell a story, we exercise control, but in such a way as to leave a gap, an opening. It is a version, but never the final one. And perhaps we hope that the silences will be heard by someone else and the story can continue, can be retold. When we write, we offer the silence as much as the story. Words are a part of the silence that can be spoken. There's no more silence. <laughs> At least it's harder to find. And the silence is where the growth exists, usually when the noise and it's just you and all the stories and the iteration towards finality is filled with gaps and the gaps are becoming smaller and smaller because there is more and more to distract. And this is because of the dopamine hits of social media, something that is likely never going to go away, but will probably need to be managed. But social media like wants you to feel anxious. It wants you to freak out because if you're freaking out, it means that you care and you're gonna continue to scroll, right? You'll keep on scrolling and you'll keep on swiping and you'll freak out more. The normal things that you do, it's actually a sign that something's wrong with you. You're a mess. You're an absolute mess. Give me your data. Give me your money. Keep scrolling. Keep swiping. Give me your time. You have endless time, right? It's not finite. Keep scrolling. Keep swiping. Keep scrolling and swiping. Consume. 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 Forget about context. Just consume. Why are you consuming more? Consume more. As Julia Alexander wrote, I see, I engage, I disassociate. Ted Goya made a chart talking about the rise of dopamine culture, and I think it gets into this. Why we scroll, why we swipe, why we scroll? It's because we want to feel something, and this is very, um, it's tough. It's tough. And this is the backdrop of the full whole phone as an extension of the arm thing. 
the assisted living device of the phone. And again, I'm veering into old man yelling at cloud territory, but the way that we experience time is completely warped now. Time has been compressed to the past, the present, present, and the future all at once as we interact with everything all the time across every time period, as Douglas Rushkoff discusses in his very good book, Present Shock. Rushkoff argues that we have experienced narrative collapse. I don't know if it's so much narrative collapse as much as it is narrative stagnation. And Marcel Proust wrote in Time Regained, Indeed, nothing is more painful than this contrast between the mutability of people and the fixity of memory, the fixity of memory. And that's sort of where we are. We have this weird balance of existing in memory palaces that are inescapable, not a bad thing due to social media, as well as trying to figure out exactly what the capital I individual is meant to be doing here. Donna Stone Cipher wrote the beautiful poem, The Ruins of Nostalgia, which captures the memory part of personhood. This is just an excerpt, just a part of it. But she writes, the barber is dead, long live the barber. The city of our youth no longer exists, it exists in our minds. The barber's pin-up calendars are smoldering their way down the landfill. Johannes Hofer believed that nostalgia could be cured with opium, leeches, or trips to the Alps, but we know the only cure for nostalgia is nostalgia. I've discussed the nostalgia cycle before and how we just tell the same stories again and again and again. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example, existing in the past is easier than engaging in the present, but what happens when the past is no longer the past? As T. Beckett Adams highlighted Alicia Keys had a sour note in her live Super Bowl appearance, which happens, it's fine, she's still incredible, but it was edited out of the official YouTube page. He writes, for all the recent discussion, we the post-truth world, we need to talk more about what record keeping should look like in the internet era. Because things like this audio swap with no explanation or heads up given, it's crazy making. How are we ever supposed to return to something approximating consensual reality when even the trivial things that we experience as a nation undergo stealth edits? So what I am saying here in very fast language is we Time is weird. I'm saying it quickly. Time is weird. It doesn't work like it used to. And because time is weird, we are haunted by our memories. Everything is everywhere all the time, so we end up craving the past, but the past, due to changes in technology, is now malleable. And that fractures our reality even more. And finally, 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 that gets to the part of trust. So there is a brilliant article in The Atlantic titled Chicken Littles Are Ruining America that touches on a lot of themes. The rise of individualism, how we like to bond through anger and a common sense of threat and how status and belonging are conferred through negativity and apocalyptic, apocalyptic uh, rigidity, which is an, an ability to see the world as it is, but rather only those nightmarish elements which justify the hatred and rage that are the source of your self-worth. It's a kicker of a line, it's a kicker of an article, and it talks about how victimhood is sort of what people find community in, doomerism is what people find community in. The article discusses this victimhood complex and the celebration of catastrophe and how all of this has led to negative polarization and collective victimization. And the sign from Mr. Bagel summarizes it well, releasing one's victimhood create space for a new life. So the Atlantic article essentially says, hey, listen, everyone is collectively freaking out and it's a lot for complex reasons, but the main thing is doomerism is a solve in the face of everything that we're dealing with. I've written on this before, the promise of saying that the world is going to end uh, because it's entertaining, it's community, it answers the siren call of the leadership crisis that we have, but why is it happening? And I think it's happening for three main reasons. Part one, it's the Kafka quote, you're free and that is why you're lost. It is hard to have autonomy. And the second part is we live in the economic reality which, uh, you know, I, I told you I'd get back to it eventually. We have a structural affordability crisis. There really isn't a beginner mode. The Mitsubishi Mirage no longer is being sold. There's no car for sale under $20,000. We're all very aware of what's going on in the housing market. There are rolling recessions that 
are impacting employment as well as restructuring, which suggests more frictional than cyclical unemployment, which is good. But with the housing crisis, uh, we are finally realizing that maybe housing projects don't need to generate 20% returns and the government can take some part in the business, bidding process for these homes, as shown in Montgomery County, Maryland. Housing is the root of a lot of anger that threads itself through our economy, as well as decades of stagnant wages, rampant inflation, etc. But it's really housing. But it's becoming harder and harder to take chances, whether that be innovation, risking it all to move to a new city, trying something new in general, because it's becoming more and more expensive to take these chances, to give yourself a shot. It's hard. It's expensive and it's there's nothing to catch you. And then there's the other part of the economic reality, the attention economy, in which our eyeballs are very expensive commodities. We have commoditized ourselves to the point where we sort of are what we consume. We've acetized our feelings to give them value on a sociological marketplace. It doesn't help that we are using language to come up with words like doom spending, the idea that it's just easier to spend money on things that will bring you immediate fulfillment, or things like quiet quitting, which shapes the narrative in a weird way because it's sort of frustrating to like go and see these terms. But it's deeper than that, right? It's the teens being told to become specialists by the age of 18 so they can be cookie cutter perfect for college. It's the cars becoming monochromatic because safety is found in standardization. It's adjacent to the hyper-optimization required to exist in some elements of the digital world as Rebecca Jennings explored in Everyone's a Sellout now. She writes, the commodification of the self is now seen as the only route to any kind of economic security. Because if you're not appeasing the algorithm, good luck out there. And when you're constantly being sold to, when everything is a team lad all the time, you get to another part of the chicken little essay where it's very difficult to trust. The US is very low trust, a bunch of eyebrows raised at one another in skepticism that makes sense, but it's also a bummer. And this gets into the final part. We just don't see each other anymore. Derek Thompson just published a post on how we're not hanging out anymore. The whole loneliness crisis thing. As Rushkoff wrote in Present Shock, in the real world, 94% of our communication occurs non-verbally. Our gestures, tone of voice, facial expressions, even the size of our irises at any given moment tell the other person much more than our words do. Without such organic cues, we have to rely on retweets and likes to get it, even though we have not evolved for hundreds of millennia to respond to those symbols in the same way. So again, we are subjected to the cognitive distance between what we are being told and what we are feeling. It just doesn't register the same way. We fall out of sync. So we are hyper-connected to the point of disconnection. We are compartmentalizing everything in an attempt to manage it all, which makes it all feel even weirder. And if you will allow me to be an absolute hater for a second, these Apple Vision Pro goggles and the Meta goggles is going to make all of it even weirder. The last thing that we probably need is another piece of technology that disconnects us. And of course, the goggles are great for people who need them to connect with the world, those with disabilities, etc. But the goggles as a philosophical concept, you know, Gitapur wrote, this society which eliminates geographical distance reproduces distance internally as spectacular separation. As Jacob Needleman wrote in Time and Soul, the essential element is to recognize how much we call progress is accompanied by and measured by the fact that human beings need less and less conscious attention to perform that activities and lead their lives. The real power is the faculty of attention. It's, it's one of the most indispensable and most central measures of humanness. We are what we pay attention to. And one of the worries with goggles is that we're becoming more and more hyper-fragmented, more and more sucked away into our spaces, seeing only what we want to see and removing all friction. And already, the removal of friction is the root cause of the loneliness crisis. Rosie Spinks wrote the wonderful article titled The Friendship Problem on why friendship feels like admin now, why you have to send your friends a Calendly link in order to have lunch with them. And she quotes Esther 
Perel. Modern loneliness masks itself as hyperconnectivity, and so people have easily 1,000 virtual friends, but no one to ask to feed their cat. That loneliness, which is really a depletion of social capital, is extremely powerful. Everything about predictive technologies is basically giving us a form of assisted living. You get it all served in uncomplicated lack of friction, no obstacles, and you no longer know how to deal with people. Because people are complex systems, relationships, friendships are complex systems. They often demand that we hold two sides of an equation, and not that you solve little problems with technical solutions. And that is intrinsic to modern loneliness. Everything has been optimized to the point of near non-use, including friendships. The commodification of self contributes to that tech as a forcing function to create aesthetics, define culture, and monetize people. As Jonathan Haidt wrote on the insistent digital need, the proliferation of smartphones and social media mean that young men and women now increasingly inhabit separate spaces and experience separate cultures. So we compartmentalize. Um, while dealing with true economic reality and then also exacerbating some elements of reality to create a sense of friction, loneliness, and we hyperconnect to the point of disconnection. David Brooks ended his chicken little piece calling for common love and collective action, which is really all that you can do when you talk about this stuff. There isn't an easy solution. One could say, well, log off, you clearly need to, but that leads us to an absolute loop in which is it's impossible to escape the void. As Chris said, wrote on social media's trap and inferior equilibrium. Because social media is where all their friends are, most teens have no choice but to use it. Meanwhile, a minority of teens do not use it, but they are also unhappy because they miss out. Everyone is therefore less happy. Timothy Roy argues that solution is finding true community through gathering those that build community, being near each other, allowing friction, knowing friction comes with failure. So we've gotten to this point where everything is perception, where everything is constantly some sort of spectacle, something to pay attention to, which becomes almost impossible to exist in. Society isn't reducible to a bunch of, you know, numbers that voters aren't living in a universe unto themselves with like, with like a set of preferences that were fixed at birth that will, you know, then determine how all elections will come out, that we can math all of this out from the start. I think it's really important to me, um, this idea that people affect each other, they communicate, they talk, that this happens in ways that are chaotic and hard to predict. And here there's some interesting avenues to like try to experiment with different, for instance, messaging, different interventions and fostering, for instance, a view that there is cooperation, that many great things have happened in humanity because people have cooperated, that there are many situations that are in fact win-win, or there's ways to try to make them win-win, and it depends a little bit on us and a lot on policy too. I think just a more overtly aspirational culture that says, hey, how can we make things better? I think would all other things being equal certainly create an environment where those innovations and advances are more likely to happen. A large part of looking forward might be recognizing our connections, as Adrian Rich says, and on lies, secrets, and silence. There is no truth. A truth, a truth is not one thing, or even a system. It is an increasing complexity. The pattern of the carpet is a surface. When we look closely or when we become weavers, we learn of the tiny multiple threads unseen and the overall pattern, the knots on the underside of the carpet. I think the biggest thing is changing the way that we talk about the economy too. You can't have an asterisk next to everything saying this might not apply to your individual situation. There's been a lot done to recognize the structural issues of affordability, but policy will increasingly need to move in that direction. And it has, but we also need to be mindful of the way that we consume financial information. And no, at the end of the day, that headlines are a business model. I always struggle with ending pieces and even just talking out loud, I'm like, there's so much more to be said, but you kind of have to stop talking eventually. I don't like being prescriptive. I much 
prefer to be descriptive, but when you bring up big problems, you have to talk about big solutions. But the words sometimes aren't enough. As Roland Barthes once said, if you enlarge a detail in a picture and a painting, you produce another painting. And I think we just gotta remember that word painting. A lot of it comes with explaining what things mean, uh, putting things simply. There was a tweet that said, cultivating ease, joy, and fun, to my utter surprise, is one of the highest ROI skills. And that's a big thing. You're like, just being around one another. And that sounds silly, but it is sharing things. It's sharing in each other's stories, recognizing that language is sometimes not enough and that trust might be formed just through being around one another more. Uh, Sean Thomas Delery says it better than I can because right now there's someone out there with a wound in the exact shape of your words. I don't know the solution. Um, Hank Green once said, if we knew the solution, we would do it, <laughs> or at least we would get closer. And this is just going to have to be something that we address as we co-evolve with our phones and with the goggles um, and all of those things, because they're not going away, right? Uh, so it's going to be, and the reason I spent so much time on this piece is because it's going to be important. It's going to be important to think about this and um, you know have the words to describe the things that we're feeling because when we think about things like the vibes being off a lot of that is people not having the language to describe their lived experience like it's like what am I feeling I can't I don't have the words for it um, and so it's really just like creating that 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 space creating a, a way to communicate about these ideas as enough for now Hope y'all are doing okay. This is also a newsletter with like charts and stuff. Kaladosubstack.com. Also a podcast version. Let's appreciate on every podcast platform. And uh, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Everywhere. Hope y'all are doing okay. And I'll talk to you very soon. Very soon.